As I said, it's been a number of weeks since we've been in James. He was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and some of his flock had been dispersed due to persecution. This letter is extremely practical. This, this is one of the most practical letters in all of the Word of God. And I love practical books because it is kind of like, wow, there's no gray. I'm not going to escape what God is telling me. And that's what we've been finding all the way through James. And he's making us look in a mirror. And he is saying, as a professing Christ follower, and this is the whole letter, does my day in, day out life show that my profession is true? Does my day in, day out life absolutely show that what I profess as far as being a Christ follower, is it true? It's very black and white. It's practical in the sense that it helps us live and walk every day and and we know what God wants us to do, but it's also practical because it gives us assurance of our salvation if we see these things as characteristics of our lives, but it's also practical if we claim to be Christ followers and these things are not practical in our lives, then we understand what? I need to check, am I truly saved or not? So it's practical on many different levels. It's difficult to let this book settle into our minds because it strips our lives bare of pretenses and it helps reveal who we really are in our hearts. Everything that James is dealing with finds its source in our hearts and we're going to see that today. He writes, Christ followers handle trials differently. Christ followers take responsibility for their temptations because they know temptations begin in the heart, all temptations. Christ followers are doers of God's word, not not hearers only. They bridle their tongues. They don't show partiality. Their lives are full of good works because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they are full of wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom. Those are all things that we've already looked at. All of these things grow and manifest themselves in every true Christ follower's life. They will get better can't help it because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. Yes, we fail. Yes, we sin in these things. But as we mature and become more and more Christ-like, these things will become more and more visible in our lives. They will become part of just our life day in and day out. I, I have a military training that is just part of my life. What happens to me every morning? Every morning because of my military training. <laughs> Wake up early. Elaine hit, it, hit the nail on the head. I can say we're going to sleep in normally, 5, 5.30, I'm awake, it's time to go, because it's been ingrained in me. Same thing happens as we begin to live and grow in each of these things. They become ingrained in who we are. They become part of our lives, and we can't help but get better at them. The last sermon in James set the foundation for the section that we're entering, and that would be chapter 4. I called it an excursus on anger. Because we needed to take some time to understand what anger is because it is not uncommon for us to find Christ followers who do not know what the Bible really says about anger. If you want to listen to that sermon, you'll find it on the website. It'll give you some more background on what the Bible just generally says about anger. And we understand something that anger is dangerous because we live in an age of rage. We live in an age of rage. How many people here would agree with that? Every place we look, it seems as if everyone seems to live right below the boiling point of expressing anger that resides within them. 
There's anger between nations, between races, between family members, in our jobs, on our children's sports teams, and in the stands. There's anger in the church, and there's anger on the roads. We live in an age of rage, and that fact is not lost on anyone here this morning. We know anger is dangerous when it is fleshly, self-centered, and uncontrolled. It is bad for your physical and mental health. It destroys family and social bonds. It costs families and governments billions of dollars a year. And more importantly, it drastically undermines our witness of the gospel. And it undermines our spiritual vitality. The Bible warns us over and over of anger. Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood. Did you get that? How devastating is a flood? When it comes through, nothing is left untouched with a flood. And that's what anger is. Wrath or anger is fierce and anger is a flood. But who can stand before jealousy? Proverbs 29, 22, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Anger causes transgression. It increases transgression, not only in our lives, but in the lives of other people around us. Because our anger towards them will often result in what? Igniting anger back at us. The Bible reveals to us that our anger, the source of our anger is flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, and look at the highlighted words there. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. That's all caused by anger, isn't it? And James has already mentioned in the first part of his book, in chapter 1, he mentions anger. Know this, my beloved brothers, and we're going to come back to this a number of times today. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. And what? Slow to anger. Now listen to this. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In any circumstance... In any circumstance. And as we move into chapter 4, James is going to again bring us face to face with the issue of anger. Except this time, he is going to camp on it for a while. He's going to camp on it for a while. James wants his people to know genuine saving faith will lead us to become people who are not marked by anger. And this morning, we'll see James again weave this together with a previous part of his letter. James chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What we see as he enters into chapter 4, verse 1, that he is going to show us that anger does not fit into that. Anger does not, as it says in verse 18, give a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are a people of peace. We are a people. That doesn't mean we don't stand firm on things, but our hearts are at peace. Our minds are at peace. Anger becomes less and less a part of who we are. And so I'm going to read for us. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. If you please stand. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we're going to learn this morning about anger. Lord God, I pray that it would change us at our very core. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So James, as I said, he's going to deal with anger in more detail here at the beginning of chapter 4. And then he lays it out in three main headings. The source of anger, the results of anger, and the remedies of anger. And James begins to reveal what the source of our anger is. And this truth that he sets forth is going to cause you to wince this morning. When we look at what he says about anger, it's going, about the source of anger, it's going to cause you to wince. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fighting among you? Is it, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Basically, what he's asking is, what is, the source, what is the source of the anger that is causing the quarrels and fights? And James' implicit answer is clear. It comes from within us. Look at that. It says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where does our anger come from? What is the source of our anger? Right here. It's our hearts. Look in the mirror. It's the person that is looking back at you. That's the source of every angry moment that you have in your life. The source of our anger is us, and we need to let that settle on our minds. This is so hard for us to truly admit. It is. We like to excuse our anger, don't we? We like to give it reasons of why we were allowed to get angry or why it was necessary for us to get angry. And James doesn't allow us to do that. And this is just as hard as it was for us to admit that the, that the temptations that we spend back in chapter 1, it was we looked at it and the temptations, where do temptations come from? Every temptation we encounter, what's the source of it? Our hearts. What we're finding out this morning is that every time we get angry, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. The fact is that all temptation that we have that we deal with comes from within. We see that in James chapter 1, 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured by his own desire. 
And we see the same thing now with anger. We must not let the truths James is writing go, out, go in one ear and out the other. The unrighteous anger we all deal with finds a source in our hearts. Consider what James is writing to his dispersed flock. Consider this. You will never be able to point your finger at someone else or some situation as the source of your anger. If my wife, we, and we do, don't we? We say things like this. If my wife hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have yelled at her. We're going to find out that that's just not true. If my husband would just pay a little more attention to me, I would not be so angry with him all the time. If my daughter would just stop disobeying me, I would not blow up at her. If my boss had given me the promotion, then I wouldn't have gotten angry. All those examples we do what with our anger? We're pointing that the source of our anger is where? Outside of us. It's caused by somebody else who did something else. But we have to understand something. It's not limited to just people. No one can blame a situation on their anger. I'm going to wince here again. I got angry because they cut me off when they switched lanes in front of me. Can't blame the guy who cut you off. The anger comes from where? In the heart. I got angry because my flight was delayed and it caused me to miss my connection. If we get angry, where's the source in that situation? I got angry because of the traffic jam and it made me late to an appointment and I lost a job because of it. And that just makes me really ticked off. We're going to find in James that there is no finger pointing ever when it comes to anger. James is not going to let it, them or us get away with this, his flock. Our anger is not caused by a person or a situation. The source of our anger is the self-centered one who looks back at us when we look in the mirror. And I also want you to notice something that's really, really important here. Look at the last two words of verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions that are at war... Where? Within you. Who's he talking to? The church. Everything we're going to talk about anger right now, okay, does apply generally to anger in our lives. But in the context of James, he is talking about anger where? In the church. He's talking about it in the church. This is not anger displayed at the soccer field, the Little League baseball field, or in an angry mob in the streets. It is not the anger we see displayed in day in and day out because we live in an age of rage. And James points that out. This self-centered anger disrupts and destroys fellowship between church members. And you need to also notice that this anger seems to be on the verge of becoming violent. Quarrels and what? Fights. There is so much anger within the church body, within these church, these, these dispersed, his dispersed flock, that they are almost ready to fight each other over it. This is a church in severe conflict. It is not a church that is, as we already saw in chapter 3, verse 18, a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. This church is really far away from that. 
They were a divided congregation, and as James continues, he is going to be like a surgeon who uses a scalpel to open the body to get at a deadly cancer below the surface. He is going to surgically open up the church body and expose to everyone the cancer that is causing the quarrels and fights. Let's read in the last part of 1 through verse 3. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and to spend it on your passions. The cancer there, everything in there was self-focused. You desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. The cancer that caused this anger was selfish, earthly, sinful, passions and desires. Their desire to have it their way had taken a dominant place in their hearts, even at the expense of other believers in the church. They were self-focused, and they were getting mad at each other because their desires, their self-focused desires were not being met. Look at verse 3 again. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This cancerous anger that resided within them had even spread to their prayer life. They were only focused on whom when they prayed? Me. When they prayed, they prayed with themselves in mind, asking for things to spend on their own passions. Their focus was not on God's kingdom coming, but on building their self-centered kingdom on earth. This anger, this self-centeredness had become so cancerous that it invaded even their prayer lives. We are not sure what they were fighting over, but some um, commentaries say that an educated guess would would point to Arguments over who was going to lead, specifically those who wanted to teach. This is another, another reach back into previous sections of the letter where it says, do not desire to be what? A teacher? And many think, uh, commentaries think that the fights and the quarrels were over who's going to lead these churches. Who's going to be the, the elders and who, who are going to be the teachers? And this helps us see that this anger source and self-centeredness is not limited to just material things. If this is true, if they were fighting over who was going to be leaders, then we can see that this anger isn't, would, would be sparked because, could be sparked because of things like position, status, pride, a sense that someone did me wrong or someone disrespected me or someone took something from me. If we ever respond in anger in that way, it is always self-centered. If we respond in anger because somebody did something to me or because they took something for me or because they disrespected me, if we respond in anger, James is leaving us no way out. It is not godly and will never be, bring forth a righteous spirit within us. I love how Philip DeCourcy, a pastor in California, sums up James's point here. When you have a heart that is not subdued by God's will, when it is not controlled by the Holy Spirit, when it is not governed by the Word of God, you have a heart that gets overgrown with unruly desires. I want 
I want, I want, and I want it now. And if you don't give it to me, war will ensue. And he continues, anger is sourced in a godless, self-seeking, in godlessness, self-seeking and self-love. When it comes to anger, the problem is not environment. The problem is not circumstances or how you are being treated. The problem is you and me. The problem is you and me. Yes, there is righteous anger. We talked about that in the last sermon. There is godly anger, but sadly, that is not the norm by any stretch of the imagination. Our anger doesn't mimic Jesus' anger, and it is more often than not stained with a focus on self in some manner or some way. And James continues and points out that this self-centered anger is not only disrupted and destroys fellowship between members of the church, it does not only disrupt their prayer life, but it also causes serious disruption in their fellowship with God. This anger separates not only you and I, does not only affect our prayer lives, but it separates us from God. Take a look at verse 4. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Grasp that. Circle that verse. Highlight it. Mark it with a star because it is one of the most important verses that we need to deal with today in our lives. Don't miss the language James uses here. He says, you adulterers. Remember, his flock were Jews. Would this have been a common expression in the Old Testament to them concerning God? How many times in the Old Testament does God call Israel an adulterer? You adulterers. Your anger shows that you are like the world. Your anger shows that you are more like the world than you are like Christ. And you are adulterers because my people don't Show anger like that. We could rephrase James' words like this. You adulterous church. Wow. James is not pulling punches here. How would you like God to look at us and say, you adulterous church? That would sink to our very core, wouldn't it? And that's what James is, God is saying through James. Think about that. God sees our unrighteous anger that finds its source within us as being in love with the world, and because of that, He sees us as adulterers. James makes it clear that if we live as if we are friends with the world, having the same type of anger that we find in this age of rage, we become his enemies. Look at the last part of four. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot be a friend of the world without being an enemy of God. There is no gray area. There is nothing but an all-in. If we prefer the world, if the world means more to us than the commands of God and heaven and eternal things, James makes it clear, you are an enemy of God, period. We must not lie to ourselves, we must not sugarcoat it. 
If we live as friends with the world, we are enemies of God. James is being very pastoral here to his dispersed flock. I want you to understand that. I want you to grasp that. James is being very, very pastoral here. He loves his flock. There's not a pastor around who wants to come to the flock and say, listen, you need to deal with this or that, and in this instance with this anger. But he loves his flock. He wants to cut the cancer out. He doesn't want it to be there any longer. Somehow he knew there was disruptive anger within the church, the churches of his dispersed flock, and he sets the mirror right in front of them and says, look, don't sugarcoat this. You cannot continue to have this anger and this disruption in the church and call yourself a friend of God. Remember what James is saying. He says, remember what I wrote just a few lines before. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and what? Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Does not, never, ever produce the righteousness of God. The primary source of anger within this church that James is writing to is self-centered, and this anger breaks fellowship with fellow members and God. I want you to understand something. Sadly, this unrighteous anger still resides in churches today. It never has gone away. If we were to look at the mirror, if we were to look in the mirror at Sardis, we would find that anger like this resides at Sardis. I'm not saying it's as cancerous as what James is seeing in his flock, but do we know with fleshly people in this church, do we know that this kind of anger exists in this church? Absolutely. It exists. And we're not, we know it exists in families. We know it exists outside the world. But he, remember, the context is within the church, between church members. And we need to, to look in the mirror as a church and say, this anger resides right here at Sardis Baptist Church. We can't fool ourselves. We must not fool ourselves. And we need to work, and we'll see some more about that here. We must not let it just reside. We must not let it just be there. We must cut it out like a cancer. We need to be diligent to root this anger out. We need to see it. We need to kindly and gently acknowledge it, and then we repent from it and ask for forgiveness. We must not make excuses citing external forces for causing the anger. We must own it because it comes from within our fleshly selves. Let me ask you to look in the mirror. Is there anger residing in your heart towards somebody or something in this church? Anger doesn't always show itself. So don't say, oh, no, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't yelled at Pastor Mark yet today. Okay, I haven't yelled at him today. I'm, I'm doing good. But anger doesn't always show itself. It can smolder in the heart. It can live tucked away for years and still cause a break in fellowship with God and with others in the church, even though you never really express it. If you've been married for very long, you know exactly what this is. You've come to a point in your marriage where you understand that if you just explode, it doesn't do any good. 
It's not going to help. Okay? But there's something there. It's boiling. It's smoldering. And how many of you as husbands and wives immediately know that that anger is there even though it has not been expressed? There's not as many hugs. There's not as many kisses. But we understand, don't we? Even in the church, it can smolder. It can be there. It can be deep inside, and it can ruin our relationship with God as a church and as individuals. It can ruin our relationships between each other, and it destroys our witness. It destroys our witness. James is clear, anger is sin, and any anger you have finds its source within you. And we all need to repent and ask for forgiveness, specifically in the context of the church and also in the world around us. We spend a lot of time on the source of our anger, so let's see what James says about the results of anger. The results of anger. Look at me at chapter 4, verse 1. We've already seen this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? We understand that one of the results of anger is quarrels and fights and conflicts. That's a result of anger. Can, that, can quarrels and fights and conflicts ever bring glory to God within a church body? No, it cannot in any sense of the imagination. Then we see in verse 2, murder. Murder. Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. It is doubtful that there was actual murder going on within the church in this context. But in this context, it could include murderous hatred, extremely destructive behavior. It can lead to fights and violence. But you can remember what God's Word says. You don't have to murder to be considered a murderer. If you have a murderer's heart in God's eyes, you are what? A murderer. And that's what we see here and what he's talking about. When a lusting person cannot achieve his desired goals or her desired goals, whether for reputation within the church, for prestige, or outside the church and sexual gratification, money, power, escape through drugs and alcohol, success, possessions, the affections of another person, or whatever, the result is often catastrophic to others, and it's always destructive to oneself. Always. So it causes quarrels and conflicts. It causes, leads to a murderous heart. And it also provokes God. Grasp onto this, folks. Your anger isn't just focused on the person you're talking to. It's not just going to be provoking to the person you're talking to. Your anger provokes God. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You provoke God. You provoke God. Your anger, my anger, especially towards those who belong to the body of believers, is not just some little minor sin. It provokes God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see provoking the Lord, and it, is never, and it never ends well with Israel. Let me give you one example here. In 1 Kings chapter 21, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. He's talking to Ahab. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off 
from Ahab, every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the houses of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, and like the house of Bashan, Bashah, and the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. Over and over and over we see God when he is provoked. It does not go well. It is a severe issue, and anger provokes God. If you're an enemy of God, are you provoking God? Absolutely. Because you're refusing His love. You're refusing to put Him on the throne. You're refusing to humble yourself, and you have made yourself God in His place. That provokes God. Anger provokes God because it mirrors the world. Look at verse 4 again. It mirrors whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It mirrors the world. Our anger, also a result of our anger, it pleases the devil. Provokes God. But it also pleases the devil. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you're not resisting the devil, what are you, ask, what are you inviting? Who are you inviting into your life if you're not resisting? Does it ever go well for a Christ follower not to resist Satan? It doesn't. When we do not, when we have anger, do you think that pleases the devil? When we have anger and disunity and disruption within the church body, do you think that pleases the devil? Absolutely. You see, our anger is not just a little thing. I've said that over and over this morning. It provokes God. It pleases the devil. And if we run down to verses 11 through 12, it turns us into evil judges. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That's not by accident that he says brothers. What does that refer to again? brothers and sisters in Christ. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Therefore, it, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That could be a whole sermon in itself. But the bottom line is, one of the results of our anger is it turns us into judgmental people towards each other. And you know what's sad about that? You know what's sad about that? And I've watched it. We've all seen it. There's anger and stress within a church. And I've seen it in business meetings. I've seen it in Bible studies where people are pulling out the Word of God in anger saying, See what the Word of God says? You're wrong. Oh, no, 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 no. See, over here in the Word of God, this is what it says, and you're wrong. That's evil judgment. We're using God's Word to do what? Bolster our opinions, bolster our side of the story. It's not done out of love and care and kindness and, gen and in a gentle manner. It is done out of anger. It is done over a one-upmanship. I can show you a better verse in the Bible. No, I'll show you a better verse in the Bible. We can sum up the results of anger like this. Bad anger that has its source within us 
absolutely promotes the devastating work of Satan within the church. Work that devastates our witness and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I live in an age of rage, and the only cure for that cancerous rage is the gospel of Jesus Christ being presented by followers of Jesus Christ who each day live in peace with each other, who are noted for their peacefulness within the church and without the church. Without that, we are going to be ineffective. We'll never go anywhere. We'll limit what God can do with Sardis Baptist Church and with what God can do in each of our lives. We live in an age of rage and the only cure for that rage is the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings peace. And if we don't live that peace in the church, the world's not going to listen to us. James's words are heavy and challenging most all the anger we find in our lives finds its source within our very hearts that have out-of-control desires and passions that are focused on self. And this anger results in broken relationships, pain, destruction, and a whole host of other things. And the question we must ask is, are there any remedies for this anger that we struggle with? What are the remedies for anger? And we see them sprinkled throughout verses 4 through 12. And we're even going to go back a little bit to find one in chapter 1. And what I want you to understand about something here is that as we go through these remedies, don't miss that they are of a vertical focus, not a horizontal focus. A remedy for anger is focusing on God and our relationship with God. It is not focusing on the people who are making us angry. A horizontal focus will never Stop the anger. It is only when we stand before God and live and react like He wants us to, that is the only time the anger will be cut out of any church or out of anybody's heart. So the remedies of anger. Let's go back to chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. We'll find the first remedy for anger in James chapter 1. Verses 19 through 20. And what we find here is that we must restrain ourselves. Restrain yourself. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We must restrain ourselves. We must be slow to anger. We must make a conscious choice to restrain ourselves. When anger and frustration begin to boil to the surface, we must be slow to speak. We must be slow to anger. Look at what it says in Proverbs. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has hasty temper exalts folly. Anybody who just pops off, anybody who just flings stuff out, anybody who shoots from the hip, is a person who exempts, only exalts folly. I'm going to put it very graphically in another way. It's really stupid to blow up is what this verse is saying. It serves no purpose. It's really stupid 
to blow up. Because that kind of angry response does not and never will resemble the righteous anger of God. We must hold back, take time to weigh out our response, work through our motives, make sure we come to God and pray, Lord God, how does my response match your word and what you want me to do? We must make sure that we're seeing things clearly. We must make sure that we are seeing the whole story of what is making us angry, have the right perspective. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that this is a true statement. Some people will say, I can't control my anger, but it's not true. No one can say that it's not possible for them to control their their angry outbursts. No one here can say that, and I can prove it to you. I'll give you two examples. A husband and a wife are in an argument, and it's getting really heated because the husband feels that his wife has not shown proper respect to him. He loses his temper and blows up uncontrollably. They go to bed angry, divided, and he gets up in the morning and they don't speak. Everybody, anybody been there? Any married couple been there? Every word seems to be just pulled out of each other. And he goes to work. Gets into work, his day is going on. And that same man is disrespected by his boss in the same way his wife did. But he controls his temper because it's unprofessional. And of course, it would cost him his job and his career. So he's disrespected in both situations, but at home, he unloads. But he understands the gravity of blowing up in front of his boss. Can that man say it's impossible for him to control his anger? No way. Are we inconsistent like that? There are just certain situations and certain people that we will not blow up, even though we have tremendous anger, but we go home, and often our anger is taken out on the people we love the most, and we feel free just to let her fly. I'm sorry, I couldn't control myself. You just lied because you just did it at work. Here's another example. Another day, the same couple, they've made up again. They made up, but now they're at it again. This time, the wife blows up because her husband doesn't seem to listen to her. While she is letting him have it, on, letting him have it she's let, reading him the right act, the phone rings. She grabs the phone. And what do you hear? Immediately, hello, why yes, pastor, we are doing fine. I'm so glad that you called. True? How many times when somebody walks in a room in the midst of an argument, we all of a sudden change? Immediately. You see, we can control our anger. Everybody here can control our anger. Everybody here can be slow to speak and slow to anger. But we have to choose to do that. You can control anger, and with, that help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can grow in self-control, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. We can all grow in our self-control. Controlling our anger is part of that fruit of the Spirit. Another way that we can 
remedy our anger is to recognize the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And if you're a Christ follower, I'm going to tell you something right now. That ought to break your heart. Every time we get angry and we know that it does not, we did not live in the righteousness of God, that ought to just collapse us. That ought to bring us to our knees because our, what we did did not show that we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to understand that your anger is unholy before God. Your anger in every instance is unholy before God. How many of us want to live there? When you put it like that, we want to run away from our anger, don't we? We don't want to make excuses from it. Your anger is unholy before God, and therefore it always promotes the agenda of the devil. It always promotes the agenda of the devil. Think about back on the results of anger that we just looked at. All of them promote Satan's agenda, and that ruins our witness for this, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, well, some of my anger's got to be righteous. I'm not saying it, none of it is. But by far the majority sits where? Not in the righteous anger of Jesus Christ. And again, if you want to examine that a little bit more, we talked about that in the past sermon. And then we need to, of course, repent. We need to repent. I want us to look at the picture painted by James in verses 8 through 10. I'm just going to, not going to read them all, but I'm going to just highlight some things starting in verse 8. Repent, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Is that part of repentance? Drawing near to God, coming to Him, saying, Lord God, I, I need to confess. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. Draw near, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Be wretched, mourn, weep, humble yourselves. James is painting a picture of a repentant heart there. A heart that has been broken because the Holy Spirit has convicted it of sin. We may often feel sorry for our anger. We may often apologize to those to whom our anger was directed. However, there is often couched, and I have been accused of this, rightfully so, by my lovely wife. Couched in my apology is that big word, but. I am really sorry that I did this. I, sh I should not have yelled at you, but. Hmm. Immediately what happens there? Where's the finger go? Right back at her. But! I'm sorry I snapped. But if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't have blown up. But I really had a bad day. I'm sorry I blew it up you, but, but I had a bad day at work. Are you taking responsibility for your anger there? Not at all. It's not often we respond to our anger with a deep, heart-wrenching mourning because we just sinned against God. 
And that's what needs to happen with every time we get anger. It needs to be deep, heart-wrenching brokenness when we get angry, when we yell and blow up, when we direct our anger at somebody else and blame them for it, when we know from Scripture that it belongs to us in our heart. I want you to understand something. One of the greatest deterrents to your anger is a broken and contrite heart. You want to know why? How many of you enjoy having a broken and contrite heart? Is it painful to, when you realize how much your anger has caused the devastation? Does it, does it hurt? Does it cause pain when we understand that we did not bring the righteousness of God into the situation? When we feel that deep sense of pain, that deep sense of hurt, because we know we just sinned against God, against our church. When we feel that, we don't want that pain again. How many of you ever just enter into pain? How many of you uh, just say, oh man, that hurt, I've done it three times, that hurt, and I'm going to do it again. We often do what? Shy away really quickly, don't we? I can tell you from personal experience, I used to be a much more angry person, especially before Kathy and I met. And there's times when I would hit things. But I started to change. Because when I was angry and I would hit something, I realized that every time I hit something, what happened? It hurt. Right? And so the next time I went to hit something, in the back of my mind, what did I do? I held back a little bit because it hurt. Guess what? It hurt again, even though I held back a little bit. It wasn't long before I realized that if I am going to get angry, it's not a really good idea to hit anything because it always hurts. When it hurts our heart and it breaks our heart before, uh, when we come before God because we're angry, then that is one of the best deterrents because I don't want to feel like that again. I don't want that hurt again. But if we just let her fly and remain angry at each other in the church, and we just let it smolder and sit there, then we never really have that contrite, mourning heart. And it really doesn't phase us the next time we get angry. What we need in churches today is a deep, deep sense of grief over the anger that resides in so many of churches. We need mourning over anger, genuine repentance over anger, not excuses for why we are angry. Anger is not an environmental issue, and it's not a hereditary issue, it is not a personality issue, it is a sinful, self-centered heart issue every time. And that's what James is telling his folks, those he loves. Praise God that God reminds us that God will always forgive us when we repent. 1 John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, of, <clears throat> convicts us, our hearts that we have sin, made <clears throat> that we have sinned the sin of anger. Make no mistake. We need to repent and have contrite hearts. The next remedy we find is we must receive the promises. Look at what we see, starting in verse 6. But He gives more grace. Amen? 
He gives more grace. We need to receive these promises. When we do find that we fail, when we do find and we come to God with this broken and contrite heart, then we need to receive grace. We don't need to live in guilt and shame. I blew up again. I did this again. We need to look at God and say, Lord God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for your grace. Then something we've already looked at, verse 8. We need to respond to this promise, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. We don't need to be separated God when we voice our selfish anger. We need to repent, as we've already said, and then we can draw near to God. And does He want that? Yes, because He wants to draw near to us. And then look at verse 10. I love this one. Humble yourselves. Is that part of having a broken and contrite heart? Absolutely. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will what? Exalt. You don't have to wait the next year to make it up to where you were going before, you know, on your spirituality level here. You confess with broken and contrite heart, and God says, you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you, and I'm going to exalt you. We're good to go. We're going to grow together. You're going to grow. God is our strong ally in our battle with anger. He's our strong ally but only if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If we have come to a place where we see our sin is made as enemies of God, if we come to a place where we believe we need salvation from that sin and that Jesus is the only way to be saved from that sin because he died and rose three days later, then God is our ally in our battle against sin. However, if we've not come to that place, we have no ally. We belong to Satan. If anyone here this morning has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, then you will never win the battle over your anger. It's not going to happen. You'll never win your battle over anger. There is no hope to not become part of this age of rage. You will find it in your heart. You will find it in your life. And if you make excuses for it, then you will never grow. Praise God that no one has to stay in that state of hopelessness. If we look at Romans 10, 9, and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what happens? You will be saved. When you say, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Master, and I will look at life from His perspective, and if you believe that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with one, with, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one, <clears throat> one confesses and is saved. We don't ever have to stay in bondage to our anger. There is a way out. There is a way for us to grow. If you find yourself in this hopeless state, please come and talk to me. I would love to help you gain a better understanding of what it means to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ and to be able to help you understand how He can help you grow uh, win over your anger we have another remedy resist the devil resist the devil look at verse 7 submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you we are to let God rule our lives not the our unruly desires that lead to anger 
to let God rule in our lives, we must resist the devil. If we don't, and I've already said this before, if we don't resist the devil, we will never, ever gain victory over our anger. It's not going to happen. We must resist the devil because the devil loves anger. And that is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin. There is good anger. Sadly, this is not where our anger usually resides. Then he goes on, do not let the sun go down in anger and do not give what? Opportunity to the devil. When we don't confess, when we allow anger to reside in our hearts and our minds, then we give the devil, we open the door of opportunity to the devil to destroy our lives and destroy our churches. We must work out our own salvation, as Peter says. But that doesn't mean that we work to get saved, but it does mean we must daily choose to walk in the Spirit of God, submit to God, obey the Word, love one another, and stop being angry with one another, and stop making excuses for one another. That's what it means to work out our own salvation. When we do that, then the devil flees. The devil can make anger attractive, but through the grace of God, we do not have to submit to that anger. We don't have to move towards that attractiveness don't miss the order of how james puts this the order for for this to happen submit to god that's first and foremost when god says something is anger it is anger period don't make excuses for it submit to what god says resist the devil and then the devil flees we're not going to sit there and be able to pray, oh Lord God, make the devil leave me alone, or the devil's... No. The first and foremost thing we have to do is identify what it is, submit to God, and then we resist, and then the devil will flee. Then he does not have the ability to, bring, to tempt us to anger. That order is important. If you're not willing to submit to God, if somebody says to you, we need to talk about your anger and brings you to the, to the Word of God, and you don't want to hear God's Word, is there a problem? Absolutely. If you hide from people because you don't want them to address your anger, you got a problem. Because you're not wanting help from godly people to come into your life and guide and direct. All you want to do is live where you're living and give excuses for why you're doing what you're doing. The remedies for our selfish anger are resist the devil, receive the promises, repent, recognize the anger of man does not produce righteousness of God, and restrain, your, and restrain yourselves. You and I do not have to be enslaved to our anger. We are new creatures saved from our anger because of our faith in Jesus Christ, but we do have the responsibility to work out our salvation each and every day, fighting against our fleshly anger with the help of the Holy Spirit. It is a day-in, day-out fight. You are at war with your fleshly self. And Satan wants to make everything, every part of, of, of life that will make you anger, he wants to make it attractive. He wants to, uh, you to make an excuse for why it's okay to be anger in this situation or that situation. And we find James not letting us off the hook. He says, your anger is always unrighteous if it has anything to do with you and your selfish desires. If your anger is towards somebody because they disrespected you, then I want you to understand something James says that is unhealthy, ungodly anger. If you're angry at somebody because <clears throat> you don't agree with them, 
If you're angry at somebody within the church because they, they, they are a different personality or they have a different theological stance, guess what? God says that is wrong in every case. And Satan wants us to fight and argue amongst each other. Satan wants us to hinder our witness. So it's time to look in the mirror as we close this morning. James again has made us look in the mirror and ask some really hard questions. The one I want to leave us with is, when you look in the mirror, how would you answer this question? How am I dealing with anger? And if we're going to keep it in the context of James, how am I dealing specifically with anger that I may have towards anything or any situation or anybody within the church? How am I dealing with that, honestly? Sardis will never become what Sardis could become if we don't diligently fight against the anger that is going to crop up in this church. We are not immune to it. It's it's going to be a fight. We're going to have to root it out. It's going to be work constant work, but we cannot let it reside here. And I'm not saying that we're exceptionally bad at this. I don't think we're at a place where we're getting ready to have fisticuffs like James was in the, he's addressing the churches there. And I'm really glad about that because I'm not very good at fisticuffs. But I want you to know something. All right? It's going to be here. It can be at a, at a much lower level than what James was dealing with, but if it's in this church, it is hindering Christ's work in this church. At whatever level we find the anger at Sardis Baptist Church. Be honest with yourself. If you're not where you should be, repent. Ask forgiveness. Work it out. God is waiting to shower you with grace and mercy. To help you reflect better this week, I've given you a few verses from Proverbs to help you reflect on the the danger of anger. You can see it on the back of your sheets. Just some verses that that the the writer of Proverbs says, here's here's what anger is. Take it home. Read through it every morning for the next week. Don't just go out these doors and lay anger off to the side. Deal with it daily. Daily. I hope and pray that this does not make you feel guilty, that it does not make us feel heavy. It's hard. What James is doing throughout his book, it's hard. It really is. But you want to know something? It's also a blessing. Because God does not let us live in blindness. Amen? He says, you want to be close to me? You want me to draw near to you? Then get rid of your anger. Get rid of your anger. And as Michelle comes to play, I want you to deal with anger that you may have in your heart right now. Go before God. If there's anger within this church towards, specifically because of the context of the passage, in this church with another member. Deal with it now. 
Don't walk out of here and say, I'll, do with it. I'll deal with it later. I'll, I'll think it through. Because that, James doesn't allow that. We know it's wrong. We know it is ungodly. We know it's unrighteous. We know it promotes the work of Satan. Deal with it now. Don't allow yourself to walk out of this room without dealing with it. Bow your heads as you come to God. If you have any anger in your life towards anybody else in this church, deal with it now. Confess it.